pettifogging. What is that? I've already been attacked two or three times on the way in. Why would you name a sermon after that? Well, it just, you know, I like to talk about things that are happening now. I mean, the Bible is things that have happened before and things that will happen. I like to talk about things that will happen now. I haven't kept, I confess, I have not kept up with the impeachment trial in the Senate. Uh, I'm very much aware of it. You can't escape it. And nor I should I suggest that we should. It's, it's historical and it's, you know, we're citizens of this country. But it's an interesting thing happened, like, I guess a week ago um, in the first segment of uh, this trial, and it really is a trial. Uh, it's an interesting thing, and the uh, Constitution provides for this kind of thing, and uh, only the uh, House of Representatives can bring charges. They do the investigation and they bring the charges, and they actually appoint some of the people who actually try the case. One of them is from here. And so they try the case, and it has to be done in the Senate. The Senate assumes the responsibility of being uh, kind of the jury, 100 jurors. And so they're in there. They can't use their phones. They can't bring any food in there. They can only bring water and milk. Don't ask me why it's water and milk. I saw a picture of Mitt Romney, and they were accusing him of drinking chocolate milk. That's how ridiculous this thing all is. It wasn't just regular milk. So it's been going all these weeks. The first time they were having it on Wednesday, it went past midnight. Now, these, these men and women, past midnight's probably a little out of the ordinary for them, certainly being in the Senate chamber. And it was just deteriorating into just a squabble. So the presiding officer of this whole thing is the judge, the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So you got all the branches there, and they're trying the executive branch, which is represented by the president. Certainly a very interesting thing. It's interesting that our forefathers even provided for this. Like, if this ever came to this, this is the way it should be done. So finally, the chief justice had had enough. He's got a gavel. And uh, he's sitting up there at the very front, and he just starts banging his gavel, and he brings the whole thing to a halt. This is 12.30 in the morning, I guess Thursday morning, Washington time. And he begins to talk about pettifogging. Well, I can see millions of people flipping through their dictionary or getting online and trying to figure out what this was, including the senators. Well, they don't have any phones. They can't even look this up. So fortunately, he explained what that meant. It hadn't been used in that chamber since 1905. I don't know what the context was in 1905 when they said pettifogging in uh, the, the Senate. But what it really means is this, and I'll give you the official definition and then we'll talk about some of the other applications. It means too much attention paid to small, unimportant details in a way that shows a limited mind. <laughs> Draw your own conclusions there. <laughs> but you know, that happens all the time in Senate Congress. But, but this was a special case. This is a very important case, and it was a very important circuit. And, and the, the Supreme Court Justice, John Roberts, he just got tired of it. So he gabbled the thing to a stop and said, let's get, make the main thing the main thing. Let's get on with this. If there's some things that we need to talk about, if there's some things that we need to try, we need to bring to our attention, let's do that. And forget this squabbling. We've had enough of this pettifogging. Well, here's some other definitions of pettifogging. Quibbling with insignificant details. Does this sound familiar to anyone in life? Maybe you know someone who's just this way. 
Legal chicanery. That sounds redundant to me, but <laughs> we have any lawyers in the bunch? I, I, you know, my son is a lawyer, and he's married to a lawyer, so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Marginal, petty, no big deal. And I love this definition of pettifoggery. Rinky-dink. Now, we all identify with that, don't we? Well, there's a lot of this going on. You know, you don't have to go to Congress to find it. It goes on in our life every day. The minutes are ticking away. The hours are ticking away. Life is ticking away. And we're pettifogging. We're living, in many ways, rinky-dink existences because we don't have much to show for what we're doing. Really, if you reflect back on yesterday or this past week or the week before that or the past six months or anything else like that. What is significant then? If, if what they're doing and what they're saying and the yammering that's going on back and forth, if that's insignificant and it's something that we shouldn't do, what should we do? What is important in this world? We have a perfect example in Washington of a bunch of people who are highly intellectual, who have been elected to office by us, and they're accused of just being insignificant and not doing anything that matters. Saying so, so what does matter? What matters for us on a day-to-day -day basis? That's kind of where I want to go today. We're in between, as I said last week, fear not, for I'll bring you good tidings of great joy, the advent, and fear not, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. So between the advent of Jesus and between his imminent return, that's where we are. And so we're here and we ought to be making a difference. We ought to be doing significant things, not pedophiles. So what is the main thing? What is the main thing? I, I hope you'd agree with me that it's Jesus and him crucified, that it's go ye there into all the, all the world, teaching, preaching, baptizing, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Every time I baptize somebody, I'm thinking about them, and I'm thinking about my baptism, and I'm thinking about a lot of things. It's just a rush of emotions. But I, 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 I remember in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what it is. That's the main thing. But how do we get to that point? What do we need to do to do that? To get to the point where the minister is about to put somebody underwater and baptize them in the name of in obedience to the command of Jesus. How do we get to that? Well, I've got some suggestions on how we get to that. You knew I would, and they're, they're here. I think we have a lot to do, and a lot of it begins with small, everyday acts. Jared, the father, and Joe were playing catch in the front yard. I used to do it with my boys all the time. We had three, you know, the twins. You know, we would throw it to each other. When I got hurt, we were not able to do that anymore because I couldn't, I couldn't move if the ball wasn't thrown directly to me, and I fell over a lot of times. 39-year-old 30, man laying on the ground really messed up my kids. It hurt them. But I remember what it was like. So Jared and Joe were doing that. Joe's the dad, Jared's the son. And right in the middle of this pitch, Jared suddenly stops and he says to his dad, Dad, um, do you think there's a God? Well, Joe's kind of caught off guard and he said, you know, I'm not sure, son. I went to church a couple times when I was a boy, but I really don't know much about that. I, I'm not sure there is a God. Jared dropped his glove and his ball on the ground, and he ran in the house. 
So Joe, the dad, is just standing there like, what is he doing? It didn't take very long, and the boy comes running out of the house with a Mylar balloon that he'd gotten for his birthday. It was kind of float, helium balloons. So he's got the helium balloon, and he's got a three-by-five card and a magic marker and some tape. And his dad says, what are you doing, son? He said, I'm going to write to God. And so he began to write this note. And, and he wrote, God, if you're there, send somebody into our lives so that we'll know that you're real. And he looked up at his dad and said, I'm going to send this airmail, wink, wink. So his dad thought that was pretty cute, but probably pretty ridiculous. I mean, what possible things could happen after that? But he didn't discourage him. He, he, he let the, the balloon go and uh, it disappeared as a little dot into the sky. A couple of days later, they're driving along in a car, uh, obviously son over here, dad behind the wheel. And dad, who was kind of known as being kind of cheap, sees a sign up ahead. It says, free car wash, free car wash. He thought, oh, okay, free car wash. I'm going to at least check it out. So he pulls in there. It's a bunch of teenagers. They've got hoses. They've got buckets. And he rolls down his window. A nice kid walks up to him and says, yes, sir. You want your car washed? And he said, uh, well, that would be nice. How much is it going to cost me? Nothing. Why, why would you do this? Because we want to demonstrate the love of God. We want to do something that matters to uh, people. It's just a little gesture, but it's just something we decided to do. It won't cost you a thing. Well, the dad looks over at his son, Jared, and Jared kind of smiles and nods his head like he gets it, you know. Here, I asked for it, and here it is. And so the dad says, are, are you Christians? And the young man says, yes, we're Christians. That's, that's what we're doing, and we are Christians, we're believers. And the man, bless his heart, there's a lot of people who would ask this question. Are you the kind of Christians that believe in God? Well, it seems like a kind of ridiculous question to us, but there, there's a lot of folks, well-educated, well-meaning people who are in this category, in this generation of people, believe me. And the young man said, yes, we are those kind of Christians. You know, it doesn't take much to get people interested in who we are if we're doing things that matter. Small acts, big results. Small acts, big results. Jesus talks about him in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 32. He's now on the Mount of Olives. He's teaching this sermon, which is certainly one of the most historic sermons ever. And he's talking to the people, perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of people there on the side of the mountain. And here's what he said in Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, page 1144. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on the right hand and the goats on the left hand. Then the king will say to those on the right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This has been set up before we ever showed up, but there's, there's something we have to do. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or give you something to drink or you were a stranger and we took 
you in, or naked and we clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I love that word, assuredly, like you can count on this. I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it unto me. Well, there's a good laundry list of things to do to get the attention of people in need. Now, there's a lot more. I mean, it might involve a free car wash, but it, it's, it's, it's small things. Now, some of these would be obviously very large. If somebody's really starving to death and you gave them something, or someone really needed a place to stay and it's a horrendous night and they need a place, they're in serious trouble and danger. So there are examples of these in which they're not just simple or small things. They're quite large things. If you're in jail, and I've visited many, many, many jails uh, on a national level and a state level, and I mean, I've been to Leavenworth to visit somebody. It's a national prison, very imposing, foreboding-looking place. And I've been in a, you know, a county jail down at Angleton and been in jails here in Pasadena. It's not an option. I mean, he's told us to do this, okay? In fact, none of these are supposed to be really options. They're small things. But you should see the face light up of somebody when you go to see them. And you realize they're not all alone. They're not completely forsaken. Somebody cares about them. This is personal, but it's not private. Personal, but not private. It is one-on-one. It is person-to-person. But it ought not to be private because we should know about it. I mean, we should know, we should know about it. Not that you're bragging on what you did, but people ought to know that they can do that. They can do it too. It puts the idea in their mind. Maybe free car wash. So, it's small things. Big results. So how do we go about this? I mean, what's the best way to approach this, making a difference in the lives of other people? All right, let me tell you another story. Now, this, this is often used when somebody's interviewing you for a job, and they're trying, the, whoever you're going to work for is trying to be interested in your integrity. What, what's your moral fiber? What, what is it that you would do, and how can they count on you if you become an employee of theirs? So here's the story. You're driving down a street in a, in a horrible storm. I mean, it's raining, it's cold, it's miserable. Uh, rain's going horizontal. And you see uh, just up in the next block a bus stop. There's a bus stop. And there are three people under the bus stop. The first person on the bus stop is an elderly lady who is in poor, poor health. And she's actually sick. She's waiting for a bus to get her some medical help. Now, here she is out in the storm. The second person on the bus stop is a friend of yours whom you have not seen in quite some time. Now, I'll tell you the depth of the friendship. This person saved your life once. I mean, saved your life. You wouldn't be in the car driving down the street in the storm had that person not saved your life. Person number two. Person number three, you're a single person, single lady, single man, and this is the love of your life. You're seeing him or her. It's love at first sight, and you know it. So those are the three people under the bus stop. Which one do you pick up? Well, they gave that test to thousands of people. And one of the answers that they, the guy just kind of stopped everybody. 
because it really showed thinking outside the box. It really showed what Jesus would do. It showed that. So here's what he said I would do. I would pull up there right away and I would hand the keys to the man who saved my life and let him take the little old lady to the hospital. And I would sit under that bus stop in that storm with that person that I've always wanted to know. <laughs> Good answer. Everybody won. I think Jesus looks at the life like that. I think, he, I think he approached everybody that way. It's not like the way you would normally think. It's not even an analytical way. It's a heart way. It's a love way. It's, a, it's what's the best thing for all the people involved. What can we do to make a difference in the lives of these people that I'm confronted with right now? Not what's best for me, what's best for them. Look at um, Mark with me. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Through 31. Now, John talked about in, in Revelation, I think, a few weeks ago about the commandments, but look at, look at what happens here. Then one of the, this is verse 28 of chapter 12, Mark. Then one of his scribes came and heard them reasoning together, perceiving, this is kind of like a meeting, you know, like we're talking about the Senate. And, and, he, and he answered them well. They liked his answers. They were impressed with Jesus' answers. He's being kind of cross-examined. And they ask him, trick question, which is the first commandment? Now, keep in mind, as John pointed out uh, from the pulpit just a few weeks ago, there are 613 commandments. 613. We, we normally hear the word commandments and we think of 10. Well, there certainly are 10, but the people that he's talking to, these are Jewish people talking to Jewish people. Which is the greatest commandment? So Jesus didn't hesitate. He says in verse 29, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, as your scripture points out, is a quote from Deuteronomy. Jesus often quotes, if you read the black letters under the red letters, he's taking that from old, what we would call Old Testament scriptures. That's how acquainted he was with them, and that's how much he lived them. Remember, he came to fulfill the law. And he's saying, that's the first thing. But part of that whole thing is verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. But he doesn't stop there. And the second, like it, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. So there it is, laid out for these people who are questioning all the commandments. And Jesus said, if you follow this, you will please God. You will serve God. You will, you will be in the kingdom of God. Because this is what it's all about. And I notice that it says strength here. Yes, soul, mind, and strength. So mind meaning we are thinking about what we can do to try to entice people into the kingdom of God. And strength means we do it. It's something you do. You're not hoping that someone will just walk up to you and say, you know, um, I've always wondered about Jesus. Do you know anything about him? I suppose that could happen. But you know, as well as I do, it's more likely to happen as a result of something you've said or done or some approach you've taken. 
it's, it's, it's going to happen that way. It involves strength in the mind. And it may just be a car wash. Who knows what it might be? It might be any of those things. Matthew 10 calls it a cup of cold water. It's a cup of cold water. You've probably had a time in your life where, wow, you'd have just loved a cup of cold water. It was hot. It was Houston. It was summer or somewhere else. And it was just I mean, I've been out in the, the, dead, the, uh, the dead Sea. I've, I've been to, uh, uh, what's the place in California, the dead? What is that? Death Valley. Thank you. I've been in that thing, which is well below sea level, and it's just brutal. I mean, I don't know how any creature on the planet even exists in that area. So you want a cup of cold water. And Jesus uses that illustration to talk about, and he's talking about people who do that for his disciples, and he's saying, if you do that for them, you're doing it for me. So it's a cup of cold water. And that's all it takes sometimes. Well, we have to think outside the box. We have, to, we have to think like Jesus would think about the situations around us. Uh, my good friend, Cease Murphy, uh, with whom I've written five books, Cease is 87 years old and uh, has been a pastor, has been a... Um, he was a missionary to Africa. He almost got killed over there on the mission field. The cease is 87. He, he really can't drive very well anymore because he can't see very well. But people drive him, and here's what he does every other week. He takes communion to shut-ins. He, he buys the little, the little things with the juice and the little uh, bread stuck in it. He, he takes that uh, and takes it around to people who couldn't possibly come to church and experience it himself. He said it's just one of the most challenging things he's ever done, and he's done some real challenging things in his life. I mean, he's sold probably 50 million books. But he does this with elderly people, people who are infirmed, who couldn't possibly go to church. He takes this uh, to their home and leads them in communion over and over again, all these different people. Well, it's thinking outside the box. It's something that he thought of, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. I can do that. And... And, and guess what? Somebody else has to drive him there. So somebody else is doing something to, uh, to minister to people who can't help themselves anymore. It's thinking outside the box. Lord knows in Pasadena, Texas, with 150,000 people, there's a lot of things we could do to entice folks, to, to get their attention, to meet needs. And Lord knows the church is doing this. I mean, if you get on the website, see all the ministry that the church is doing. I mean, it's just wonderful. I mean, uh, we just got a thing from the, from the uh, convention, uh, from the association about uh, meeting the needs of widows and, and folks that are doing without, or just barely getting by. So there's a sensitivity there. Thank God for that. On the way in, uh, Buddy and I were talking about uh, mission trips where we went to Kennewick, Washington, and we went to we went to Virginia Beach, and we went to Southern Illinois, and we went to Buffalo, Wyoming, and we went to all these places. And You know, if you go inside uh, those places, you can't see them because they're inside the wall, and we built the wall. But if you could open up the wall, you would see on the sheetrock written on the inside, First Baptist Church, Pasadena, and the date would be there with our names. We're not looking for brownie points or a pat on the back. But Jesus said, if you do this in my name, you do it unto me. And those people remember us. We always left thinking we brought more back with us than we took because of the blessing we received.
by being there. Maybe that's something you can do next time a trip is going somewhere. And you don't have to go to Wyoming. You can go right here. There are plenty of opportunities and ministries here. Do the small things and it has a big result. And think about every situation you're faced with Jesus. Maybe you could start something totally different that's never been done before. Maybe you have a vision for something like that. Thomas Edison, who's not only a great inventor, he's a pretty smart guy. He says, if we all did what we're capable of doing, we would literally astonish ourselves. That's a pretty good goal. Well, let me give you an example. Let's, let's put the, uh, the statue uh, up, and I'll talk about that in a second. This is, this is the first one is um, Atlas. Can we put that one up first? Yeah. If you've been to Rockefeller Center in New York, and I used to work for CBS, this is right down the street. This is NBC, National Broadcasting Company. It used to be the RCA building, and this is built by John D. Rockefeller. Out in front of it, besides uh, a skating rink and a bunch of other stuff, is Atlas holding up the world. Atlas holding up the world. And he's, his muscles are straining. He's, he's enormous. It's a big statue. And here's the world. The weight of the world is on his shoulder. A lot of people don't know that right across the street from this statue, Atlas holding up the world, a mythological figure, is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And it's quite a magnificent place. It's, just, it's, it's like one of the cathedrals you'd see in Europe. It's that beautiful and that big. I've had the pleasure of being in there on a number of occasions. So inside that, down at the front, is a massive, massive altar, of course, and lots of statues. But one of them is very small, and, and here it is. You've already seen it. It's a picture of Jesus as a boy. Now, remember across the street is Atlas holding the weight of the world on his shoulder, and this is Jesus, about the age he would have been when we discover him in childhood when his parents lost him. And he's in the church. And guess what he's holding in his hand? The world. The earth. Let's, let's get this straight. He's got the whole world in his hands. Not up to us, but it's the little things that we do. We're not in this alone. Okay? Jesus is with us. He'll guide us if we'll ask him for wisdom in our mind. He'll give us the strength to do it. If he guides us to do it, he's not going to ask us to do something he won't equip us to do. So he's got the whole world in his hand. That old, old gospel hymn, which is now 100 years old, is not we've got the whole world in our hands. It's he has the whole world in his hand. What a beautiful illustration of we think we're holding up the world, and Jesus has got the whole world in his hands. Nicole and I went for an elephant ride. Yeah. There was this wildlife park between Dallas and Fort Worth. I don't think it's there anymore. There was a big, you know, Six Flags is there, and there was a big wax museum, and all these tourist attractions were there. But there was this big, this big um, amusement park, but it was all animals. You, you drove through it, and they would come up to your car, and you didn't want to roll the window down too much because they would stick their head in. And you could buy food to give them, and they knew that where the food was. So it was kind of scary. But one of the things they offered was an elephant ride. You could ride on an elephant. Needless to say, Eva would have none of riding on elephants. The boys were too small to ride on elephants. 
Nicole was game. And daddy, 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 let's ride on the elephant. We got on the elephant. So this is a picture of an elephant. And um, I want you to notice something about the elephant. He's, he's tethered. He's tied. Now, these elephants, there were three of them. We only rode one, of course. Had ropes around their neck. And, and they were, it went down the side of them. And it was tied to a stake just like this. Just like this. And you look at that, and from a practical standpoint, do you really think that stake could hold that elephant if he decided to take off? No way. But you know, the elephants, the other two that weren't riding people, never moved. They just stood there and just kind of maybe grazed a little bit, looked around, didn't move, because they were staked. Now, this elephant probably was staked from infancy. Weighs to six tons, but from infancy, when it only weighed a couple of hundred pounds, it was also tied to a stake because, you know, they can walk right away. They're not like humans. And so what had eventually happened was, because it was staked, it had no idea that it could wander off if it wanted to. It's staked. A little two-foot stake and some ropes. You know, you may be able to tether your horse like that unless the horse really wants to get away, but this is an elephant, one of the largest creatures on earth. Nicole and I rode one. It was interesting, quite fun, but also a little scary. So what about that elephant? I think the elephant, no matter what the possibilities are, what it could possibly do with its strength and its size and its mind, because they're very intelligent creatures, was staked in it and, it, and it didn't know that there was a way that it could do anything else. Wasn't aware of that. I think sometimes we humans are kind of like that. We're, we're kind of tethered. We don't want to go beyond any boundaries. In fact, in a real sense, we don't even think we can go beyond any boundaries. This is as far as we can go. What we have done so far is as far as we can go. And I think um, we need to let loose. John 14, 12. Listen to what Jesus says. He's talking to his followers. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing, and then I love this part, he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Very familiar verse. But I think that second part, that second phrase, well, it's really the third phrase of, of four. I tell you the truth is the way it starts. Anyone who has faith in me, I hope that's everybody in this room and beyond, He will do what I've been doing. Well, think about the stuff Jesus has been doing. The Bible is filled with things that Jesus did, and then he, the Bible also says this doesn't even cover a fraction of what he actually did. So with that in mind, he says, he or she will do even greater things than these. Well, we're going to have to let loose. We're going to have to let go. We're going to have to thinking like Jesus thought. We can start with small things and they'll have big results. I used to uh, ride a bicycle before I couldn't ride a bicycle. I had a little accident and after that I couldn't. I used to ride 30, 40, 50 miles a weekend on my bicycle. I had several bicycles. I was 
The doctor said that one of the reasons they were able to save my legs, especially my left leg, because I was in such good shape physically before I got hit by the truck. So I was a bicycle rider. And I had one of those bicycles that had 10 speeds. You've probably seen these bicycles that have gear shifts on them. I had one of those. But I think back about it and I realize I didn't even use half of those gears. I mean, I wasn't constantly gearing up and gearing down again on 10 speeds. I was riding. I was pushing. I was trying to go somewhere. And I did go somewhere often. I didn't use all the speeds. And I want to suggest that we're not using all of ours either. There are things we can do. What areas in your life are you putting to the limit? What are we doing that really matters in the big scheme of things? Jesus said, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, take in the people who don't have any place to stay. Visit the people who are sick, in jail, have a car wash for people who will just stop and talk about Jesus, go do communion at a place where people don't go and they don't have anybody come to see them. I think there's a lot of things that we can do. Sunday school teacher asked the kids in the class, this is a child's class, he asked the teachers in the class, um, what do you need to go to heaven? What if I sold my house, my possessions, everything that I owned, had a big garage, yard sale, I sold everything and gave it to uh, the church? Would that get me into heaven? All the kids said, no, 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 that won't do it. So he asked the question, what if I went down to the church and mowed the lawn, uh, cleaned all the bathrooms and just stayed there and did helped anybody I possibly could help and took care of the church. What if I did that? Would that get me into heaven? All the kids said, no. No, that won't do it. So he just turned around and asked them the question, what do I need to do to get into heaven? And one little boy in the back says, you got to be dead. <laughs> well, I mean, the, ki the kid was onto something. I mean, you have to be dead. But I, I think we know where that Sunday school class was headed. It's not the things that we do that get us into heaven, but when we get into heaven, we'll be judged on the things we do on the way. And we could do a lot, each one doing something, maybe several somethings. Some of us have more time to do things than others. Or we can just petty fog, talk about things that don't matter, quibble over this, over that and spend our time elsewhere. We get to heaven, it's not what we do, but of course it's what Christ has done already and what he does through us. What can we do? A cup of cold water? A meal? A word of prayer? Listening ear? Ride to the doctor when they don't have any other way? So much to do. It seems small but it has big results. I want to tell you about a couple of guys, Mark and Malcolm. I guess we can put their pictures up here, Mark and Malcolm. That's Mark. I met Mark when he was about 18 years old. I was a minister of youth, assistant pastor at Barksdale Baptist Church in Bossier City, Louisiana. I was young, probably 23, 24 years old. And so I met Mark. Mark 
had a really difficult, difficult family life. In fact, there really wasn't any family life. His parents were both addicted to different things and they divorced when they were fairly young. He had a younger sister who had some mental issues. I mean, he was alone in the world and really had very little support. He joined the Air Force. He's a very talented musician, so he played in the Air Force band. That's kind of how he got a little education and got a little head on things. I liked him right away. I was part of my youth group, and that was at the very end of his youth existence, and so he graduated from high school and was in my college group. I had a college group, and so every time I'd look out in the college group on Sunday morning or any other time, Mark was sitting in the group. So this other fella is named Malcolm. This is Malcolm. Malcolm is the same age, believe it or not, as Mark. And uh, Malcolm was one of three boys uh, in a family there in Bossier City. His dad is retired Air Force. His mother was very involved in the church. His dad was a deacon in the church. And Malcolm was a raging atheist, a preaching atheist, a person who wanted to convert everybody else to atheism. And his dad was a deacon in the church. So you can imagine how that worked out. Well, interestingly enough, Malcolm came to everything we did. And he was an atheist. I mean, he came to what we did to try to do what I'm talking about as Christians to other people, which is try to lead them to Christ. He was trying to lead them away from Christ. And he was really working at it. Very, very brilliant, brilliant guy. I mean, a brilliant guy and a great arguer. Well, Malcolm decided he was going to convert me and so he would show up at my house, everybody knew where I lived, on Sunday afternoons. It got so bad that Eva would take the kids and go over to her, her mother's house. Because Malcolm would come in, I would let him in, he would sit in my living room, and he would begin to berate me. He began to ask what I would call trick questions about the Bible. He would ask questions for which we have no answers. He did everything he could, and it would get pretty loud sometimes. Well, I have been known to be a pretty good arguer myself, and so I just went along with it because I really wanted to see Malcolm get saved. Somebody that brilliant, what a difference he could possibly make in his life. This went on for two or three years. Eventually, I was called to a church here in Texas, and I left that area. Mark got a calling on his life. He called me up. You were talking about humility earlier. Humility? <laughs> Mark became a youth pastor uh, and was going to, after he got his degree from LSU, he went to um, Southwestern Seminary working on his master's, and he was a youth pastor at a church there in the Fort Worth area. He called me up one Wednesday night and said, I led my first Bible study for the youth. I said, wonderful, that's great, I'm proud of you. I said, how did it go? He said, well, I taught on humility, and I was great. <laughs> I said, Mark, we may want to back up a little bit, and examine our approach. Well, that was Mark. Mark eventually got his master's degree. He actually succeeded me in the church I was serving before I came here. Murphy Road Baptist Church, I recommended him. They obviously interviewed him and heard him preach and everything, and they called him to be the pastor of that church. He was a pastor there for seven years. Married to Gina. I was supposed to marry Mark and Gina the week after I was in the car wreck. Needless to say, I didn't. I always felt bad about that because they were expecting me. They loved me. I couldn't be there. But we never lost touch. Mark served on my board of directors for Don Piper Ministries. Mark is now the senior pastor of Lakeside Baptist Church 
in Granbury, just outside of Fort Worth. Very, very large church. I'd call it a megachurch. Malcolm, Malcolm was gloriously saved. I remember when he called me on the telephone to tell me he was practically speechless, and he's hardly ever speechless. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. Well, not only did God save him, God called him in the ministry. You know, God has an amazing sense of humor sometimes. At least it seems that way. Malcolm got his degree in LSU and a master's degree. Then he went to Southwestern Seminary and got a Master of Divinity degree and two or three other degrees and finally walked up at Oxford University in London and he has a degree from Oxford. And guess what? He's one of the lead professors at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. So these guys went from doubting and destitute to this. They invited me to their graduation when they got their Master's of Divinity in Fort Worth. Oh, I was so touched and humbled that I would be there for that. A lot of moving around and getting ready at Mark's house as we were getting to drive over the seminary to have the, the, the graduation ceremony. And uh, I was excited. I may have been more excited than they were for them because of where they had come from. I'll tell you what, Mark was so poor that he went, he got a part-time job at the Baptist Student Ministry in, in, at LSU in Shreveport. And before we knew about it, nobody knew about it, Mark was living in a broom closet at the BSU. He had a little pallet. All his worldly possessions were stacked over the corner. When Skip, the BSU director, found out about it, he just looked the other way because Mark had no place to go. So we're going to their graduation, Malcolm and Mark. I'm walking down the hall. Suddenly I'm confronted with, with Malcolm. He's looking right at me. He's a tall, tall fellow. He looks at me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he said, I'm so honored that you came to my graduation from seminary. I said, Malcolm, I wouldn't be anywhere else. Honored. And then he looked down and he said this, I wouldn't be here doing this if it weren't for you. You never gave up on me. No matter how mean I was, no matter how rough I was, you just you were just patient with me. Now, there was a lot of other people involved, but he said, that's what this means to me. Right behind him, Mark is saying, you know, you bought me dinners, and you may or may not have known it, but if I, you hadn't, I wouldn't have had anything to eat. I suspect it's okay. I was honored to do it. I wouldn't be doing this, he said, if it weren't for you. I don't think they were very big things, but they sure had big results. This is Dr. Mark Forrest, and the other fella is Dr. Malcolm Yarnell. Look it up, they're there. So it does really matter. And you don't know what kind of investment it may be, you don't know what form it may take, but if you think like Jesus, you'll figure it out. And and maybe break away from the state. Adventure out and do something new, do something positive, do something that involves a cup of cold water and whatever that means. You'll figure it out. 
what a privilege it is to serve God. I don't know of a bigger one. I just don't. One day we'll stand at the judgment and he'll talk about the things that we did in his name. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this gathering here at the church. Thank you for a church that does something like this on Wednesday night. So important. Makes such a difference. So thank you for our, our pastor and our staff for having the foresight to do things that matter in our church. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, let me, let me ask you, even right now, can you think of some things that you might be able to do? Or would you commit yourself to maybe look for some things that you might be able to do? To be open, to be sensitive, to let go of the stake and just kind of be willing to be used by God in a new and different way. It may be a small thing in the sight of everyone else, but it won't be in the sight of God because it can have big results. Lord, help us to think like Jesus thinks. Right now, in the stillness of this moment, think about that and consider surrendering yourself with a blank check, no matter what. You're willing to go. I'll go where you want me to go. Think about that. Maybe that's a commitment you need to make tonight right where you're seated. But in a moment, we're going to stand together. And maybe you're like the Jared and Joe. You're looking up in the heavens and saying, is there a God? Oh, I'm so happy to announce there is. And you can be with him. It doesn't take selling all your stuff. It doesn't take coming up here and cleaning the bathrooms. What it takes is faith. What it takes is faith that God is able to do it and willing to do it. And that's why Jesus came the first time. And he's coming back. So why not ask Jesus into your heart now for the first time and really mean it? I, I would have loved to have been in the room when Malcolm did that, going from an atheist to a professor at Southwestern Seminary. And, and Mark, going from being all alone on the floor of a broom closet to being the pastor of a church in Granbury. A lot of people did a lot of things to get them to this point, and they would testify to it if they were here. So, Lord, I, I pray for salvation for those who need to give their hearts to Jesus. Just by saying, I, I am sorry for my sins, and Jesus, I know you can save me. Please come into my heart and wash away my sins. Help me to be the disciple that you want me to be on the way to heaven. And, oh, God, I'm looking forward to being with you someday. In the meantime, help me hand out cups of cold water.